If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did, uh, we're going to cover the Lord's Prayer, verse 9 through 13. A couple years ago, I did a five-week series just on these passages today. So I'm going to try to cover all of these passages in just today. And so we're going to be going pretty quick. We're going to get through it. It's going to be amazing. But we're going to learn what Jesus says to us about prayer. We're in the series called Red Letters. And the red letters, we call it that is because Jesus' words to us are in red letters in most of our Bibles. But this passage of scripture that we've been looking at for the past several weeks is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And this is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' longest recorded message to us. He, he talks about, uh, Matthew talks about how the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus is talking about how we should live in his kingdom, how, how we should live when once we his kingdom is alive in us and we're, we're alive in him. How should we live? How should that change our lives? Or should it? Should it change our lives at all? Once Jesus comes alive inside of us, absolutely it should. And so uh, this is what this message is about. The Sermon on the Mount is about Jesus telling his followers how they should live. Last week, we talked about how God wants a relationship with us. We talked about the quality of communication and we said that if you're building a relationship with someone that 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 the key to that is communication. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 the uh, Bible says let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, we may receive mercy for and find grace for our, our and help in our time of need. We get this confidence to draw near to God's throne, not because of anything that we've done or we earned. You might have messed up royally this week. You might have made a massive mistake, but you can still approach God because it's not based on what, how good you are. It's based on who you are in Jesus that we can approach the God's throne with confidence. We get this because of who we are in Christ. First John uh, chapter uh, one verse or John chapter one, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Does this mean that everybody is a child of God? We're all made in the image of God, but the Bible doesn't teach us that everyone is a child of God. You might have heard that, that everybody's a child of God. The Bible doesn't teach us that. The Bible teaches us that every person is made in the image of God. Therefore, we treat them with dignity, with respect. We honor God's image in them, every single person alive. But the children of God are those who belong to Jesus. And Jesus gave us right to become children of God. So when we talk to God, we talk to him as our father. When we approach God, we don't approach him as some distant being who's far off, who doesn't care about us, who created the world and then went away. No, no, we don't do that. We approach him as father. And in Matthew chapter seven, verse 11, if you then, Jesus is saying, who are evil, we have all messed up. Yes, we're all evil. If we, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So today we're going to look at how Jesus actually teaches us to pray, how Jesus actually teaches us 
to pray. Before we do that, we, we need to take a moment and we need to understand who God is, who God is. Like when we talk about God, who are we talking about? When we talk about God, when we talk about praying to God, talking to God, have a relationship with God, who are we talking about then? For the past 2000 years, followers of Jesus have believed in what's called the Trinity. What that means is that there is a God, the father, God, Jesus, the son, and then there's the Holy Spirit. The, all of these individuals, all of these persons are God. God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father created all of time and space. He's eternal, meaning that time is a created thing. He actually created time, but he can exist outside of it, right? So if I go home today, and uh, how many of you husbands, your wife has ever said, I want to buy this, and you're like, no, I could make that. You know, husbands, do you do that at all? Anybody else? All right. Well, I actually made uh, the headboard that Liz and I have, and we probably should buy another one because I made it a long time ago. But the headboard, like I actually made it. I stained it. I cut the boards. I, I beat it with a chain to make it all like rustic and farmhousey. You know, like I did all this stuff. Like I did all this. I made it. But I made that thing. But I existed before that thing was there. I existed. I was I had life. I, I did things before that headboard ever existed. Right. If we look at God, the creator, and we look at God, the father who created time and space, he existed before time and space ever. And that's really hard because we think, well, at one point I didn't exist and I was born and then I started existing and all this stuff. But no, he created time and space. So he was there long before time and space ever. And in fact, eternity on both ends of time and space. God was there. So he's not limited by time. So when we talk about the father, that's who we're talking about. But Jesus and the spirit were also not created. They were not created. So Jesus, God, the father didn't create Jesus and then create the spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches us in John chapter one, verse one through three. Uh, and then skip down to verse 14 in the beginning. So when everything started, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So he and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus here. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. So you see now that Jesus wasn't created just like God wasn't created. God existed outside of time. You know, he existed like just me. I existed before my headboard was there. God existed outside of time. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it was the same thing. So does this mean as Christians that we worship three gods? No. We worship one God, but that God is three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This passage in Deuteronomy is the opening of what's called the Shema, which is the Jewish confession of faith. So even though there are three persons in the Trinity, God is one. How is this possible? If there are three persons, how is this possible? For some of us, we, we, we have a hard time grasping this. And in fact, people have tried to explain this for thousands of years, how the Trinity works. How is there three different people, but one God? How is this even possible? We have a hard time wrapping our minds around this because for us, one of the big things that differentiate us from each other is that we all have different wills. 
We all have different wills. And if you don't believe that, after we leave church today, ask your spouse what they want to eat. I guarantee you, you will find out that there are different wills. Ask your kids what do they want to do today for fun. And I guarantee you there are different wills. And those wills are always going in different directions, right? But when we talk about the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, really what we're talking about is one will. One will. There's one will. And they all do the will of the Father. Jesus explained this to us in John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he himself is doing. And in greater works than these, he will show him so that they may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son, just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. God the Father is three persons, but one will. Or God is three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but one will. That's how we see God. So when we're talking about God, when we're talking about who are we talking to, who are we having a relationship with, you can have a relationship. The Father wants a relationship with you. When I was growing up at one point, I thought, Man, God was like the mean one in heaven that you talk about in the Old Testament, like smote people, smited people, whatever that word is. Like, I'm just going to strike them down. Like, that was the father. So, like, I'm just scared. And then Jesus was like the nice one and the Holy Spirit was kind of like the weird one. Like, that's how I thought, like, in the Bible. Like, that's how I kind of categorized them in my head growing up. But that's not true at all. If they all have one will, then Jesus came, the son came and died for you and for me because the father wanted to have a relationship with us. God the Father wanted to connect with us. And then he left. He's in heaven now. He's at the right hand of God. And he sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and be alive in us and guide us and direct us because that's the will of the Father. Remember, three persons, one will. So how do we know that God is three persons? When, when, well, let's be clear that Jesus understood it this way and he actually taught it this way as, we, as he describes the relationship with the Father that we just read. But he also says this in John chapter 14, verse 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father. Again, he's saying, I will ask the father. So if he's like the same person, then this doesn't make any sense. Like, no, there's two different people. I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. So this isn't Jesus. This isn't the father. The helper is someone different to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. Again, now we're talking about the Holy Spirit whom the world cannot conceive because it is neither. It neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you and will be with you. And so in this passage, we see Jesus explaining the father himself and the Holy Spirit. We see three persons present also at the same time when Jesus gets baptized in Matthew chapter three. We see the Father speaking. We see the, the Spirit like a dove and we see Jesus actually getting baptized. So when Jesus is talking about to us in Matthew chapter six and he's teaching us how to pray, 
What we need to know here is, is that God is not just like teaching us how to pray through some random guy, through some random pastor or through some random spiritual leader. No, Jesus himself is God and he's telling us how God wants to be talked to. He's telling us how we can pray, how we can, how we can approach God, how God wants to hear from us. What do we need to say for, for, for us to have a good relationship with God? How do we communicate with him? This isn't like a formula. This isn't like something, well, if I do this and I do this and I do this, then God, no, that's not what it is. But this is God actually showing us, here's how I want you to talk to me. Have you ever had an argument with a kid, like a toddler, your kid, and they act up, they act out, but you have to stop them in the middle of it and you have to teach them how they should talk to their parents. If you hadn't had that conversation, you have little kids, it's probably a good conversation for you to have, right? Just you have to teach them, how, this is how I want you to talk to me. This is how I want you. I remember one time I told one of my kids, they were back talking really bad. And I told them, I was like, listen, you doing that to your mom? That's, that's your mom, but that's my wife. And no one talks to my wife like that. You know, anybody ever told you that? Like no one talks to my wife like, you know? And so like, like you have to teach your kids how you want them to talk to you. And when we look at the Lord's prayer in the next couple of verses, this is God in the person of Jesus teaching us how the father wants to be addressed how Jesus wants to be, how the Holy Spirit wants to be addressed in our lives. And so as we read this passage, you have to understand that this is God telling us how to talk to him. This is God telling us how to talk to him. Matthew chapter six, verse nine. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before I go any further, and we're, we're going to break down that line by line and we're going to get through that. Some of you guys might have heard the Lord's Prayer where there's a line at the end of it. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you heard that? All right. What happens? And I actually sat in a Sunday school class one time when I was in high school or maybe middle school, I, I was a teenager. And they talked about how there's versions of the Bible that are good and there's other versions of the Bible that are terrible because they just rip verses out, like they just ripped them out. What happened is if your Bible has that passage in there, there's another passage in Luke, there's another passage in Acts where it like just skips a verse. It goes from like verse 31 to verse 33 and you're just like, wait, what happened there? If your Bible does that, what happens is, is when the King James Bible was, was written in 1611, they went with the passages of scripture that they had at the time. We've done some research. We found older manuscripts. We found other things. And the older manuscripts don't have those passages in them. The older things don't have those in them. And so instead of adding them in, which they say fantastic things, they say amazing things. That's why that those passages aren't there. And so in certain versions of the Bible, you'll see it where it says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And other, or other versions of the Bible, you'll see it where it doesn't say that. Does that mean that, one, that that's a theologically incorrect statement? No. Does that mean that, uh, that the, the, it not being in there is probably more accurate to the Bible that the earliest church read? 
Yes. So you just got to think through that and just don't get weirded out by that. So we're not going to add that in because in the version that I'm reading, it's not there. But let's go. Uh, first statement there that Jesus says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Last week, we looked at what this means to us. We approach God as daddy, but also with the reverence that he made all things and all things are sustained by him. We set aside his name as holy and we don't try to manipulate his name for our own ends. What does this mean to us when we start our prayers this way? I'm not asking God to work on my behalf to manipulate God for my own ends. We're honoring God. We're honoring his name as holy. And this is the posture that we approach him as we pray. Our father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. This is the next thing Jesus says in verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As followers of Jesus, again, Jesus is here to declare his kingdom. That's the theme of Matthew. And so Jesus is, is declaring his kingdom. And we, we have to be about God's kingdom. God, I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. If the kingdom of God is the most important thing in Matthew's gospel, we have to understand that when he's talking about this, he, we, we want the kingdom to be here. We want that person of Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, to be a part of our lives on a daily basis. The kingdom of God is a present reality. And so after I approach God, I approach God's name and I, I say, God, your, your name is holy. Thank you, God. I'm approaching you right now. The first thing that I'm going to say is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not my will, not what I think should happen, not how I think it should go. God, I want your will in my life. But, but also we understand that it, there's something that's coming to that God's kingdom is here. So I can pray to him right now, but there's a kingdom that is coming. There will be a day when God will reign and his reign will manifest on this earth and every tear will be wiped away and even de death will be dealt with. And so as I pray your kingdom come, I know that your kingdom is here with me now, but there's a day that I'm longing for where that will come. Philippians 9 verse 9 through 11. Therefore, God has exalted, uh, has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him. This is Jesus. We're talking about the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, our father. We are longing for this day to come as Christians. We're longing for this day to come. We want it to come where God sets everything right. But as we're praying for this day to come, we want this day to come in us. We want this day to come in us. So as you're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in, is in heaven. I'm asking God to hasten that day, but I'm asking God to bring that about in me today. I want to operate in God's kingdom today. Instead of being led by uh, my emotions, instead of being led by my flesh, I want to be led by the spirit of God. Instead of doing things for my own benefit and for my, to build my own kingdom, I want to do things that are for God's benefit and to build his kingdom. So I'm asking God to do that in me. Let my life be an example of your love and your justice and your peace and your hope in this world that is lost and dying. 
So when we say let your kingdom come, I'm asking God to let it come in the world, but I'm also asking God to let it come in my world. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in me, in my world, in my life. And God, let me be part of that. God, let me be a part of what you're doing. That's what we're asking when we're asking God to do this in us. Not my cares, not my wants, not my comfort, not my needs. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to see your kingdom active in my world. Your kingdom come also acknowledges that life today isn't the way that God wants it to be. That life today isn't the way that God wants it to be. And for some of us, this is a this is a good this is a good thing for us to admit. Because so we live in a culture now where if I like disagree with something, then I hate it. Right. That's what the culture says. If, if I if I don't, if something just doesn't work, then 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 the whole thing, I'm just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's what we think today. But what, what this tells us, what this teaches us is that things in life, the life that we're going through, the, the things that work, the things that are happening, it might not be today where how God wants it to be. There's part of God's kingdom that still needs to come, that, that, that there's a difference that God needs to make in people's lives. And there's a difference that God needs to make in my own life. Things need to change. Things need to change. Things need to be different. And so this saying that your kingdom needs to come and your will needs to be done is an acknowledgement that your kingdom and your will aren't really where they need to be right now, even in my own life. And so this is an acknowledgement to that. God, I know that there's a difference between the people chasing after you, you and what they're chasing after their own things. I know that there's idols that, that, that are in our culture. I know that there's wrong things being worshiped. I know that there's sin that's taken hold. But I want to pray today that your kingdom would come and put everything right and start that in me today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next verse, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread is simply asking God, give me what I need to get through today, whether that be practical, like literal bread, or whether that be something in the spiritual, like grace or mercy or truth. Give me the grace I need. Give me what I need to get through today. Jesus, who is God, as he as we establish that Jesus is God, is telling us that we can ask God for our needs and he'll do it. So whatever it is that you're struggling with today, maybe you're struggling with anxiety, maybe you're struggling with depression, maybe you're struggling with with fear, maybe you're struggling with a financial need, maybe you're struggling with a, a sickness in your body, maybe you're struggling with a relationship that's fractured, whatever you're dealing with today, you can ask God, God, give me the bread I need today to, to make it through. Give me what I need today to get through what I have to face today. Give me today daily bread and he will do it. Because we're asking every day, daily bread also shows us that God knows what we need today before we even face it. Do you guys, do you guys know, like, you ever had a day, maybe you were working and uh, you got so busy that you had to skip lunch, right? You had to skip lunch and it was just such a busy day. And, and you're like, man, I, I just I didn't know that it was going to get that busy. Or maybe something happened and, and you, maybe it was a car wreck or something like that. And you're like, just I didn't know that I was going to need that emotional strength to get through what was happening today when I got up this morning. 
but I guarantee you that God knows. And so when you're asking God to give you daily bread, you're asking him to cover the things that you know about and the things that you don't know about. But you know what? He does. He knows the portion that you need for today. And so we're asking God, God, give me the bread I need today. Give me the portion I need today. Give me what I need to get through today. And God will do it. Give us this day our daily bread. This also acknowledges what is the source in our life. For some of us, the worst thing that could happen to us is that we would lose our job. For some of us, the worst thing that could happen to us is that we would lose our spouse. Like that's who we put in our mind as our source. Like that's the person in my life that provides for my needs. That's the, per that's the thing in my life that makes sure that my bills are paid. That's the thing that in my life that makes sure I can eat, that makes sure that I, there's a, a roof over my head. That's the thing in my life. But give us this day our daily bread is an admission that God is my source. God is the one who supplies my needs. God is the one who does that. And for some of us, we may be carrying a weight of responsibility of being the source that God never meant for us to carry. And so we have to ask God, God, be, give me the bread I need today. And when we do that, he will meet us there. And when we seek him, he will supply our needs. Matthew 6, 33. We're going to get to this verse in a couple of weeks, but we're going to go ahead and read it now. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4, verse 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone for the Lord is at hand. Do nothing or do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God and let the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When we put God in his proper place as our source, our needs will be supplied so we can ask God, God, whatever I need for today, give me my daily bread. Give us our daily bread. The next line that Jesus says in verse, or, uh, verse, chap or verse 12, chapter six, verse 12, forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. When he's teaching us to pray, he says, forgive our debts. He's not talking about need, him needing forgiveness. No, he's talking about you and me. Jesus didn't need forgiveness. Jesus was perfect. Jesus didn't need that. He's talking about you and me. When we fall, when we sin, when we mess up, when we betray God himself, we can go to him and we can ask forgiveness. And Jesus calls these failures, these, this sin in our life, he calls us debt because sin puts people in the, in the wrong with God and only God can cancel out that offense or pardon it. When we do not, when we don't pay for our offense, we're debtors to God because we didn't pay for our sin. We didn't die. Jesus died. So we're debtors to God, but we can ask God to forgive our debts and he will do it. But it's not just enough for me and you to be forgiven. See, some people, they're good with Jesus dying on the cross and forgiving him for their own sins, but they don't want really to forgive the sins of other people. Like I like, I like my beefs. I like my, my unforgiveness. I like my grudges. I like, I like people live like this. And you don't need to live like this because Jesus died to forgive you and he died to forgive everyone. When, when I maintain unforgiveness in my heart, I'm actually minimizing the redemptive work of God. 
I'm minimizing the redemptive work. Think about that. When you maintain unforgiveness in your heart, you are minimizing God's work to redeem people, to forgive people, to set people free. God, I want you to forgive me, but don't forgive them. God, I believe that the cross was enough for me, but it wasn't enough for what they did. No, see, forgiveness is meant to heal the wrongs that you've done, but also the wrongs that have been done to you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's an old story. The author, Ernest Hemingway, he told a story about an estranged father and son. They had a big argument in a small Spanish village and they had a massive falling out and the son moved to the big capital of Madrid. This would be like somebody that lives in Queen Creek moving to New York City. And the father wanted to reconcile with his son. And so he went to this capital city and he tried to find his son and he couldn't do it. And after days and days of searching the streets out of desperation, he took an ad out in the newspaper. And in the ad, all it said was, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montaña at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. And he waited for two days. This was Sunday and he waited for two days. Monday passed and Tuesday and 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 Tuesday morning came and the father eagerly got ready that morning, hoping and praying that he would meet his son. And at noon, he walked downstairs and out of the front door in the hotel. And there was a crowd of 800 kids named Paco wanting to and hoping that their father would be the one that was out there for him. Everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody needs forgiveness. Everybody needs love. Everybody needs mercy. Everybody needs grace. There is a father that wants to reconcile with you. And if we're honest today, all of us would say that we need forgiveness. But if we're also honest today, we would likely to say that there's someone that we need to forgive. And so when we say forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we understand that God will forgive us. But we also have to forgive other people. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does this mean that God will tempt us? No, because James is pretty clear about this. uh, This is uh, James 1 verse 13. Let no one say that he is when he is tempted. I am tempted by God for God can uh, cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person who is who is tempted is he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The, then the desires when it is conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So what James is telling us is that God does not tempt us. And so when we pray to God, lead us not into temptation. We're not asking God, God, please don't tempt me today. Like that's not what we're asking. What we're asking instead is, is an acknowledgement that God is the one who is leading us away from temptation. So God is the one who's leading us away from temptation. Without God in our lives, we would just be running straight towards it all the time. Whatever the desires of our heart would, we would just be running straight towards it. And in our culture, in a culture today that tells you that that whatever you think is right and whatever you think you should do and whatever you think should do the right thing, like this is a good thing for us to understand is that God is the only person who leads us away. In the book of Judges, when it talks about, it it talks about this and the statement that says is, is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's the same society that we live in today. And listen, in Judges and today, it wasn't a compliment. 
God leads us out of temptation. And so we have to submit to him. We have to follow his leading and we have to know that he is whatever is good and just and loving and holy and righteousness in our world. It comes from God. And so if I want to be a part of that, if I want to be a part of justice, if I want to be a part of love, if I want to bring a part of bringing peace to the world, then I have to submit to God's leading because when he leads me, it won't be into temptation and he will deliver me from evil. Full submission, full trust in the leadership of the Holy Spirit draws us away from evil and towards good. This prayer asks God to lead me out of my slavery to sin. Just as the Hebrews were enslaved to Egypt, he leads us out and into his will for our lives. Lead me away from the evil that exists in the world and lead me away from the evil that exists in me. And so Jesus tells us to pray then this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Heavenly Father, thank you for setting us free. 